Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the third show in our ICE series. This series is dedicated to the Wabanaki people of Maine to help them understand the history of Wabanaki state relations. It is my intention to read every word of the three transcripts on the air and then discuss the implications, why we are where we are today and why we are treated like second-class citizens. The 1942 transcripts reveal the dialogue between the Legislative Research Committee uh, members and the witnesses they called before them to discuss the Indian problem. The final solution, quote and unquote, they were pursuing is why this series is called ICE, Isolation, Control, and Elimination. Our guests today include my co-authors of One Nation Under Fraud, a remonstrance, Judge Eric Menert, Attorney Joseph Gauss, as well as longtime guests, Professor Harold Prince and Professor Darren Ranko. Welcome to the show, everyone. So we begin by continuing our reading of the McDonald transcript, and we will finish the transcript on this show. So I will ask uh, Mr. McDonald on page 28 of the transcript to begin the reading. Hmm. Mr. McDonald, I agree with you. I think the Indians would be better off in the end if they could become citizens and become absorbed, the same as we have absorbed several other races that have come over here. I think they would be much better off as individuals. Chairman Dow, to what extent is this problem prevalent in the West? So that they have some problem in regard to intermarriage? Mr. McDonald, yes, they have some problem. Chairman Dow, so they haven't solved that problem. Mr. McDonald, they have not. Chairman Dow, is that increasing in the same proportion? Mr. McDonald, of course, their tribes are much larger. Chairman Dow, does it increase in the same proportion? Mr. McDonald, I do not know about increase in population of tribes. Mr. Payson, do you know what limitations they have put on? Mr. McDonald, they have changed them every so often. They are changing them all the time. Mr. Payson, but they do put limitations on. Mr. McDonald, but they get pressure and have them taken off. Chairman Dow, does it cost any more to support them there than if you scattered them over the state and they didn't improve themselves? Mr. McDonald, I don't imagine it would. If they were broken up as a tribe and became citizens, they would probably feel their responsibilities more. Chairman Dow, do you feel that way? Mr. Cummings, here's the way I feel. While they're in a group on the reservation, anyone can watch them and see if they're trying to get work. Whereas, if they are living in town, they fall in with the distressed poor and may cost more than on the reservation. While they're on the reservation, anyone who has any experience will know Sokolexis may be working and the agent can go out and get a job for that fellow and go to him and say, no more relief for you. And if he doesn't go to work, he will get no more relief. Whereas, if they live in town, it will take quite a while for the overseers to get acquainted with them. Chairman Dow, you think if they're not stimulated, it would cost more? Mr. Cummings, I know up in Olaman, there are three families who seem to be on relief quite a lot. 
I think, like a lot of other people, you will find a percentage who want to be on relief and another group who feel the responsibility put on citizens and do more to be self-supporting. Chairman Dow, if it didn't stimulate them, the exposure to white marriage would be greater? Mr. Cummings, absolutely. Perhaps intermarriage would be the one thing that would solve your problem. Chairman Dow, in time, they might develop a conscious feeling of self-support? Mr. Cummings, yes. Chairman Dow, it tends to standardize them on the reservation and turn them all out in the same mold. Mr. McDonald, they establish a level and are apt to revert back to it. And then the parties go off the record and they return. Mr. McDonald, I wonder if there would be any possibility of getting at this whole problem by providing some money to employ somebody to make a real study of the Indian situation from 1820 on. And believe me, that is no easy problem. It would be a long time study, but I think it would bring out a lot of very valuable information to use as a basis for determining what our future policy should be. Mr. Payson, shouldn't that be a trained social welfare worker? Mr. McDonald, I don't know that it needs to be a social worker, but it certainly needs to be a trained research worker. Mr. Payson, I have in mind the money involved in this thing immediately is a small item compared to the long range problem of how these people should be handled. It would seem to me to be a social service proposition rather than an economic proposition. Mr. McDonald, I grant you the social service proposition enters in there. I did not know, but a research person could dig out the information and show what the developments of these tribes have been and the development of our laws pertaining to Indians and why they change. Chairman Dow, you might want a social worker to help interpret those problems, which the researcher would not be able to interpret. Mr. McDonald, I was thinking primarily of digging out the facts. Of course, we will still have with us up in Perry, a man who can be of help to us, Justin Gove, Indian agent for the Passamaquoddy tribe for a good many years. Mr. Libby, as I understand it, there are quite a lot of able-bodied men man in the two tribes who practically do nothing. Mr. McDonald, not at the present time. There are not an, a lot of able-bodied men or men qualified to go out and work at the present time or on the reservations. Mr. McDonald, that is right. Aren't there many of your uh, better grade Indians who are getting out now and working? Mr. McDonald, that is right. Chairman Dow, he made the statement before you came in that practically all support was for pauper support, old people, crippled people during these abnormal times. Mr. Libby. And some degraded white man who would marry Indian women and live on the reservations? Chairman Dow, on the bounty of the state. Mr. McDonald, it is a real problem. That is the reason I have always felt we did not have enough information to work on. I started, as I believe I mentioned before, when there was ERA or CWA money available for projects, and we did get a person started on making research on the Indians. It was a girl who had had library experience and who had been trained in research work. What she did was done very well, but she didn't get very far. She spent several months on it. My experience there makes me believe it would take considerable time to do a good job, but with the information we have got, it might be very valuable to us in trying to plot our way for the future. And then the parties go off the record and they return. Mr. Hildreth, I feel rather hard boiled about it. I feel the problem is not to, a, to atone for injuries we did to the forebears, most of which we cannot help anyway, and we have got the scrapings of the bear pretty well adulterated. 
I think we should look at the situation as we find it instead of spending a lot of time and money on research. I want to do my best by those people. By Asar's dissentment, they are really Indians. As I am getting the picture, there's very little Indian left, but mostly poor-blooded whites. Mr. McDonald, I don't know whether I can go with you all the way on that. Mr. Boucher, I will go all the way with him on white blood in there. The real Indians, I think, a good deal the way Bob says. They go off the record. Mr. Payson, I don't care whether they are Indians or whites. We've invited them in there under this cockeyed segregation we set up. This bill here tackles only one symptom of the proposition. And I wouldn't want to say yes or no on that bill until I knew how it fitted into the long range plan that would work this thing out and solve this problem in the future in a sensible long range proposition. I wouldn't have any opinion on this bill at the moment. It might not fit into the long range plan. I think it should be directed by a social service man with a technical person working under his direction to get the facts he wants. So that when the thing is worked out, we can say we have got a long range pr program that we think will make them happy and useful citizens of the state instead of wards of the state of Maine, because we are not going very well by them now, doing well by them now. They are still paupers, whatever we call them, if they're taking aid from the state and they have no self-dependence or self-reliance or anything that makes for a happy life. Mr. Boucher, they're not taking aid from the state. The state owes them this money. Mr. Weber, well, the state owes this money to a lot of non-existent Indians. Mr. Payson, what money? Mr. Weber, I don't see how the state owes a lot of money to a lot of people who are more white than Indian. I will go along with Horace on that. Mr. MacDonald, I am basing it partly on the fact that we have been overprotecting and even unwise in the handling of Indian affairs from the beginning. And if we have made a mistake, then I think we have some obligation to try to correct that and do it in some way that will not be detrimental to the Indians. Mr. Hildreth, I think we all agree with that statement. Mr. MacDonald, that is the point I was trying to bring out. Mr. Weber, on this question of research, I am again with Horace until convinced otherwise. What is a research going to prove except how you got into what we now acknowledge to be a bad condition? You can still appraise your present condition intelligently, and I do not see why it is more than a lot of ancient history. Mr. Payson, I can't appraise the present situation intelligently. It may be a lack of intellectual development, but I find in government more and more, if I can get all kinds of facts, relevant facts of what has happened, and have somebody who is cap capable to interpret those facts, I can get a lot farther on a future proposition than I can just by going ahead by main strength and saying, this is what we need to do because this problem, it seems to me, is a real problem. It is, it is a miniature slave problem. We gave the slaves in the South emancipation, made them all free men, but you didn't solve anything so far as the economic problem was concerned. We've got a miniature slave problem here, and it seems to me we need to be careful in working it out not by the legislature, but by people who know how to work people out of a bad proposition as a social proposition. Mr. Weber, more specifically, what do you want to know about the past? Mr. Payson, if I knew that, I would know how to answer the question myself. I would be a social worker. Mr. Weber, Weber are you, for example, going to take each family and say, who was your father and mother and who was your grandfather and grandmother and determine what percentage of Indian blood remains? Mr. Payson, it is the human proposition. Mr. Weber, 
I cannot get it into my head what you want to know about the past that would be helpful. Mr. MacDonald, wouldn't you like to know why we made the treaty with the Indians in the first place? And after making the treaty, we have reached the point that we have today. Why we have utterly ignored the treaty and set up a new group of laws to govern Indian affairs. And since we did, what has been the effect? Chairman Dow. And to what extent did the Indians acquiesce as we went along, and how much was forced on them? Mr. Payson, and is this generation any better able to take care of themselves? And will they stick it out or fall down? All these different factors, what can be done with them? What are their capabilities, and how should they be, de be developed and educated and trained so that they can go out and be worthwhile citizens? That is the stuff I'm interested in, as well as the sociological back background, which develops uh, into modeling and sympathy and makes sensible action impossible. Mr. Hilders, one other note of alarm from my point of view. I can see how a lot of this would be nice, but I think it's a question of how far would you go? I had an awful lot rather work rapidly so that to be sure of getting something done, if it was only 60% right, than to take so much time on research that all the people who started the research are out and you start over again. And with a report 10 years from now, you start where we'd be starting today. Mr. Faison, you capitalize your annual appropriation for these people and see what uh, you have or got invested in them. Mr. McDonald, $100,000, both tribes. Mr. Faison, capitalize that and see whether it is worth ten dollars or $12,000. That is the outside figure for an investigation I can conceive of. Mr. Boucher, if you go back 122 years, it would amount to some money. Mr. Payson, if you are paying interest at the rate of $100,000 a year on your problem, I don't know what that capitalizes at, but it's very well worthwhile spending a very few thousand to solve that problem and solve it right. Chairman Dow, $50 million, isn't it, at 2%? Mr. McDonald, I would agree with Horace to the extent you wouldn't want something so long drawn out you wouldn't get anywhere in 10 years, but I don't think that is necessary. I would agree with Mayo, I wouldn't want to go off on the 60% basis. Mr. Boucher, I think they could be done between now and the first of the year when the new legislature convenes, if you had the money. Mr. Hilders, you have to get an appropriation from the legislature. Mr. McDonald, I think you could do it between legislatures. Mr. Hildreth, that would be uh, 45 before you would get to the recommendation before the legislature to start to answer your problem. Mr. Payson, well, they, they have let the thing drag for 140 years, so I guess two or three more won't make much difference. Mr. Weber, my point is that on this, as on other problems, there is the ever-present danger of what is for us an interesting discussion and a report that is perhaps semi-meaningless and nothing else following. Mr. MacDonald, that is the danger you run into in anything. Mr. Weber, I am always concerned that in any topic we have up, we will have a nice discussion about it, period. Chairman Dow, and make a report that doesn't mean anything. Mr. Payson, that brings us back to the point, Don, whether or not we are going to recognize that there are problems we can't settle in two weeks. There are problems we cannot settle in two weeks because of insufficient information, and we've got to recognize it and perhaps recommend a remedy to approach the problem because our committee anyway cannot solve it. Mr. Weber, 
Let me see if I can state the skeleton of the Payson report. Number one, we have no specific information as to the bill presented because it is so closely woven into a much larger problem. Number two, we have no present information as to the answers to the entire Indian problem, but we recommend to the legislature a substantial appropriation in line with the investment we have in the Indians and in line with what we are spending on them to proceed over a two-year period in an effort to base upon the historical development of the Indian situation and the present current problem once it is analyzed an ultimate long-range plan. Mr. Payson, there might be one other thing uh, come in there as a little face-saving proposition. If we can get enough facts from any source to destroy the myth, the Indians own the state and we are paying them interest on that ownership. If we can get rid of that whole phase by reporting this whole thing as a deal between the Indians and the state of Maine, and they have been doing pretty well, maybe the facts will develop that we might be able to lay a little background for a long range plan that wouldn't have so much maudlin sympathy. What When they have come in for Indian pay in the legislature, I've always voted against it. Mr. Weber. Mr. Cummings, let me ask you this specific question, which you may be, which may be entirely unfair. Supposing the Indians suddenly found developing with some momentum what appeared to be a long-range plan which would destroy the reservation and the nation as such, would they, in your opinion, go so far as to resort to litigation against the state of Maine in some form or, or another attempt to? Mr. Cummings, I think there are quite a few lawyers interested in the Indians, and when the Indians have trouble, if enough of them go to this lawyer, they would put up quite a battle, I should say. Mr. McDonald, you would find a certain few who would definitely try to make trouble. Gene can tell you who they are. Mr. Cummings, more in the Penobscot tribe you'll find the troublemakers. I have some in the Penobscots, but they're not bad in the Passamaquoddies. In the Penobscot tribe, you have a few that even if you give them all the money in the state treasury, they will come back and want a pair of shoes. Mr. McDonald, after all, it would come down to education and a selling program. After we start up the long-range program, it seems to me we would have to sell the idea to the Indians. It is for their benefit, and they are not losing by it. I think that is kind of the kind of program we want. We want a program that is going to help them assume their place in this country with the rest of us and do it on a satisfactory basis. Mr. Weber, do you think though that your ideas of what was to their advantage would ever conceivably coincide with theirs? Mr. McDonald, I think it is reasonable to assume it might. Mr. Payson, your old people you've got there now, you can't change the situation. You've got to start in school. Mr. McDonald, that is what we've got to do, I think. Any long-range plan has got to be based on the present young generation, on the children. We cannot even change our old people in the white race. Some of them will stick in the most god-awful places. Mr. Libby, you could start with an educational plan in your schools and on the reservations and see to it that the Indian children who were growing up were taught to believe they should go out and assume their proper place in the state. Mr. MacDonald, I shouldn't be surprised if we got the support of the Catholic Church in doing it. Mr. Boucher, I think you would in anything that would better the situation. Mr. Payson, if you restrict their marriage laws, you can force them out a lot of ways. You can force them out by their own choice. Chairman Dow, a person will lose their property if they marry outside. Mr. McDonald, you might not have to wait for anything to do that. 
Mr. Boucher, I think Bob's approach to the situation is best because if we drop anything at all that would smell as if we were trying to dissolve the tribes, we we're going to bump up against a stone wall. Mr. McDonald, I think we realize that they have a definite security. Mr. Boucher, they certainly know what they get and they know what their rights are. Mr. Weber, just like a state pauper does. Mr. Payson, perhaps we, we had better find out what their rights are. Mr. Boucher, that is why your investigation is a good idea to find out what their rights are. If any, Mr. Dow. Mr. Boucher, they got one by being the first settlers. Mr. Weber, well, as I understand it roughly, they gave up certain land, but retained timber rights and fishing rights and so forth. And for what there was and for that there was a consideration. The type of consideration is now outmoded and out of date, and it would not do them any good if they had it. And instead of that, they are getting an appropriation which is way in excess of the fair value of that stipulated consideration that they would have gotten under the treaty. Now they have lost their fishing rights and timber rights through acts of the state of Maine. Chairman Dow, they have lost their fishing rights? Mr. Cummings, they can have free hunting and fishing now. Mr. McDonald, they are subject to our hunting and fishing laws. They have to have a license, but they don't pay for it. Mr. Weber, weren't they supposed in the first place to have exclusive fishing rights? Mr. McDonald, I don't know. I've heard they were, but I've never seen the law. Mr. Boucher, one of the cries from the Indians has been, you have taken away all our rights. We used to be able to fish and hunt where we wanted to. Mr. Libby, they will tell you they can cut down an ash tree anywhere if they find it to take to make baskets. Mr. McDonald, that is wrong. The Attorney General says it is wrong. There are some things research would bring out. Mr. Weber, the thing to do would be to appraise the thing to see whether the excess they get by way of appropriation or have gotten in the past over the equivalent of what the treaty gave them is worth as much or more than the timber rights or exclusive fishing rights, if there are any, that have apparently been taken away from them. Then you would know how nearly you have come in the past to paying them for what they have lost. I have grave doubts in my own mind whether they could ever recover more than one dollar if they could ever get into litigation. I think the state of Maine could come pretty close to showing payment for what they have bought. Mr. Boucher, Norman, did you ever look up the treaty between England and the United States when the northern boundary of the state was established? I think you will find an appendix in there concerning the Indians. Mr. Dow, that is the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. Mr. Boucher, Charlie Fogg told me there was an appendix in there referring to the Indians. I think that is what they are basing their claims uh, on mostly. Mr. McDonald, I would like to look that up. Mr. Payson, third-party beneficiary. Mr. Weber, the state of Maine would not be a party to that treaty. Mr. McDonald, I suppose we would be subject to any to any treaty the federal government made. Mr. Weber, but the state as a sovereignty could not be charged with violation of a treaty of the United States government. The United States government would be the chargeable party. Mr. Boucher, I think that was 1812 before the state existed. That was the War of 1812 with England, and I think you will find that the treaty was before the state existed. Mr. McDonald, anyway, regardless of that, no state could make any law that was going to conflict with the United States treaty with another nation, could it? Mr. Payson. No, it couldn't. A treaty is the supreme law of the land. Chairman Dow, what is the custom with the Supreme Court respecting treaties? Aren't they pretty well upheld? 
Mr. Payson, a treaty is the supreme law of the land as I understand it, and no state or individual can violate it. But the treaty may be merely an obligation of the United States today. We have a legend around Portland that when Portland annexed Deering, there was an agreement that they would plow all the sidewalks to homes in Deering. And I've got a standing offer of $10 to anyone that will show it to me. I hear that every winter about 50 times. I tell every one of them, go to the city clerk's office and go through the records and show me that agreement and I'll pay you $10 because I have never been able to find it. Chairman Dow, the situation has developed over a period of years and we have been partly responsible for it in this particular situation. And I do not think we can be too brutal in rectifying our own mistakes at somebody else's expense. Mr. Payson, it would not be profitable even if we could. If you shoved these people out, as Mr. Cummings said, probably it would cost you more to put them somewhere else because you would not have centralized control. Chairman Dow, another thing, what particular right would they have to say to me if I was on an Indian reservation? Well, we're gonna put you in Madison and your sister we will put down in Callis. And to my mother and father, we will put you up in Fort Kent. Mr. McDonald, I do not think you can solve it that way. I think the way to do it would be by making the reservation part of the adjoining town and divide it up amongst the Indians. Mr. Payson, you've got to persuade them out. Mr. Weber, the towns would be awful mad to have to take that territory over, wouldn't they? Mr. Boucher, they would have to instill, install public services which they haven't got. Mr. McDonald, they've got as many public services on these reservations as in any towns. The parties go off the record and then return. Mr. McDonald, they have water and sewage and lights on the island. I will admit there would be all kinds of difficulties in trying to do this. Mr. Boucher, I know if I lived in Old Town, I wouldn't want them to be part of Old Town. Mr. Payson, it is awful hard to solve the problem when you don't even know what the problem is. Mr. Weber, is there anything else we need to discuss? Mr. McDonald, I certainly hope it results in something. Mr. Weber, the only thing I'm going to say, they have got more, they've got me more confused if possible because I didn't think it was much of a problem. Mr. Boucher, that is the nucleus of the whole thing. If we, if we can stop the white man problem amongst the Indians. Mr. McDonald, I don't know why you couldn't follow Mr. Dow's suggestion as a starter. Chairman Dow, Gene, does the church take any attitude regarding intermarriage? Mr. Boucher, they don't like it. I can say from my experience in the Catholic Church, they do not like intermarriages of any kind. Mr. Weber, then you gentlemen would hate to see this committee report. They have no opinion on the proposed bill because it is part of a larger problem. You would rather see something for or against with an amendment or something? Mr. McDonald, I would feel that was one of the basic problems. There are two problems here. We can plan on a long-term program which might result in the disintegration of the Indian tribes as such their absorption in this part of the state, and we have perhaps an immediate problem to try and prevent these tribes from getting any larger than they are getting through intermarriage with white people. We might take immediate steps to try and control that in some way, and yet work on this larger problem. Of course, time may eventually help this problem because it will res result in there being no Indians as such in Maine. But unless you are going to make a long-range plan, you are still going to have a reservation of white men called Indians. The parties go off the record and return. Mr. Weber, I think in every discussion we have had before, I have ended up with a decided opinion, right or wrong. But now all I feel 
is a state of utter confusion. It's the end of the transcript. So we're going to start our discussion on what was talked about. And I'm going to ask uh, Joe to start out uh, telling us what you think. Oh, thank you, Donna. I think, you know, there are a lot of very striking lines that come out of this portion of the transcript. Um, to me, the first thing that I think the viewers would probably have picked up on and will agree with is it seems that the, the folks in this committee were, um, by their own admission, very uninformed. Um, these were folks who had uh, more questions than answers. And I think that that's putting it lately. It seems to me that there were almost no answers. And just from a lay perspective, it's a bit concerning to think that decisions of such consequence uh, were being made by folks who who just didn't understand what they were talking about. And I'll defer to uh, the folks with the historical backgrounds here, but I think there were even some um, you know misstatements about the treaties and, and, and certain time periods. So I think just to summarize, again, being ill-informed uh, is, is quite apparent in this. Darren? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I wish I wish I could say that that has, uh, say our judiciary or uh, has that any of that has changed. I think it maybe there is a little bit uh, given, I think a pretty steep learning curve over the last few legislatures, but I hear sometimes misstatements of basic fact too from our current legislature, legislators, which is an education problem, which we all know has been sort of an endemic, you know, and on purpose thing that that our histories and our experience as native people has, has been erased and not taught. Um, but I mean, that ignorance, and I think this is why Donna created the main Indian history and culture law, she was seeing people not able to have the basic uh, line of intelligent discussions around um, how to, you know, make better policy, whether, whether you're, you know, like having basic facts around the history, I mean, or the, the notion and they compare, you know, the two major things that, that strike me as a sort of like baseline ignorant. Um, well, the first one was, uh, we want to absorb these people just like the other races that have come over here and talking about, indigenous people as foreigners in our own land and as um, somehow immigrants, and then comparing us uh, as to uh, formerly enslaved uh, populations, um, which I think is, is does, does neither are as native people or formerly enslaved people any, any good in terms of understanding the dynamics of these problems. So I think this, just this, you, you, you know, it's funny because you, you'd say like, oh, back in the, you know, back in the 1940s, you know, people must have been better educated <laughs> about what was going on. You know, somehow we had this when, you know, back when America was great and everything and everyone knew everything about American history. But these people are are patently ignorant about a bunch of things that um, and like then, like now are, are, are forced into making decisions, at, at least. Yeah, I'll give them this. By the end, this idea that they end in confusion, um, that's probably the best thing that could have happened in this situation that maybe makes them a little bit different than some of the current politicians. Like, uh, so, I, so I would say, you know, it's, it, it's alarming. Um, and, and also, if you see it through that lens that we presume our educational system has was somehow better at some previous moment. It has somehow prepared people. And it, clearly in this situation, these people were uh, absolutely unprepared 
to make a decision and to deal with uh, anything related to Native people or Indigenous people in the state of Maine. Eric. Yeah, um, picking on, up on Professor Rankos, I, I was struck by that last sentence as well. And I was it struck me just how apt it is 80 years later from, from this transcript that it's still the, the tribal state relations are still incredibly confusing and the legislature really doesn't have any idea on, on how to go forward. What's the other thing that struck me in in the transcript was how clear the policy of genocide was as far as from the state's perspective. Um, I, in particular on, on page 40, I looked at when Mr. McDonald was talking about the long range plan that's got to be present based on the present young generation of children. Th that language is at the heart of the whole boarding school concept that we're going to take the children out of the tribes, remove them and destroy their connection with the cultures and community and thereby destroy the tribe. It is the very foundation and the reason that the Indian Child Welfare was act was to try and prevent this kind of policy. The second thing that strikes me is in the discussions um, that the legislature is having that echo through the 80 years to what we're seeing in, in Brackeen in the Supreme Court, where there is this idea that somehow um, tribal sovereignty can be equated to race. And, and that is what they're trying to attack in Brackeen saying, oh, this is race-based legislation and therefore we should be able to attack it under the 14th Amendment. And the fact is that is not the issue. The issue is the, um, that is a, a sideways means of using race to destroy tribal sovereignty. Harold. Also several things, but I begin with uh, the first comment by Joe, namely that, uh, and what later was reiterated by Darren, namely what is striking the ignorance, and that should be a plea for the importance of the humanities that are currently under siege uh, at many universities, because everybody thinks somehow that the practical sciences uh, and economics and business are major, but if you don't understand your own past, as the famous um, saying goes, you're condemned to repeat it. And that's what you see here. Uh, so the ignorance, specifically with respect to the treaties, um, if I may get to that briefly, um, the first uh, reference is to the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. And since the transcript doesn't make that clear, that's of course from 1842, in the wake of the so-called bloodless Aroostook War of 1839. And that was to resolve a ongoing problem where precisely the northeastern boundary was located. And that was a problem uh, back into the colonial times, namely between the French and the English uh, domains of colonial possession of Wabanaki territory. Um, and that was on back and forth uh, all the time. For example, where was the St. Croix River exactly? So it was a big dispute which river was actually the St. Croix and which one was not. And then later you get, of course, all of Aroostook County and Piscataway County uh, was in disputed territory, but it was in terms of disputed between what was the crown of uh, Britain and the United States of America after uh, the Treaty of Paris of 1783. And that uh, was, of course, not disputed territory as far as the Wabanaki were concerned, because that was the Wabanaki homeland. The question was, how well can you carve out um, territories out of the 
uh, Wabanaki homeland to make that a part either of the province of New Brunswick, Quebec, or the state of Maine. So it's really about uh, a carving up of, um, of uh, Indian, indigenous homelands between the new sovereign entities. And the spe specific reference about the uh, ash hunting, um, sorry, the ash tree cutting, what we call in North Maine ash hunting, uh, permits which the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq got in the um, in the mid 1780s as their first official recognition by the state of Maine at the time of their existence as uh, the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaqs. Uh, I myself was involved in that securing that particular permit. Um, uh, I think it was in 1985, I think 1986 or thereabouts. It was a very important uh, stepping stone for the federal recognition effort by the uh, Rustic Band. Um, but that was always maintained by the Malaysia and the Mi'kmaq uh, and Passamquoddy uh, in eastern Maine. I don't know exactly um, uh, how that pertains to the Penobscot or farther west, but out uh, east, that was an important piece of the, um, of the indigenous rights. The confusion here is not only in terms of dates, but also then subsequently the War of 1812, which of course was resolved in the Treaty of Ghent, but that was um, uh, led to more confusion and a failed effort by the King of the Netherlands to solve that dispute that was finally resolved uh, in 1842. Uh, Ash Burton, by the way, is the same man as Alexander Baring, a huge uh, landowner in Maine, uh, whose father-in-law had uh, purchased, who was Bingham, and it was a so-called Penobscot million, but he also had the Kennebec million. Millions of acres uh, of land were purchased right after the 1796 treaty uh, with the Penobscot nation. So there's a huge entanglement, basically what I'm saying, a huge entanglement of um, capitalist investment, land dispossession, treaties, and confusion by legislators who simply don't know even the history of the state of Maine that they are supposed to govern with their um, uh, with their laws. And so if the combined body of um, people in this particular committee are so ignorant, you wonder what the governors understand or what anybody understands. And as a result, you get these uh, cockeyed, I'm quoting here the term from the text itself, there's a cockeyed uh, discussion really going on by people as uh, several other comment comments already have been made by people who simply do not know the problem and then call for a social worker to do the kind of research on the legislative history with respect to the indigenous peoples of Maine. It's just crazy. Joe. Thanks, Donna. Yeah, I think Harold makes a really good point there, uh, which is, you know, these are folks that are tasked with making the most important decisions in our society or some of the most important decisions in our society. And we've talked at length today about how they were ill-informed, at least with regard to this specific topic in doing that. If, if we could call attention to the end of page 38 of the transcript, there is a portion where Mr. Payson is speaking and he says, quote, if we can get enough facts from any source to destroy the myth that Indians own the state, and we are paying them interest on that ownership. If we can get rid of that whole phase by reporting this whole thing as a deal between the Indians and the state of Maine, and they have been doing pretty well, maybe the facts will develop that we might be able to lay a little background for a long range plan that wouldn't have so much maudlin sympathy. And he goes on to say a few more things, but the point there is, it sounds to me 
that the state of Maine, at least through these folks that were involved in this hearing or in this testimony by McDonald, already had in mind kind of what the end goal should be. And rather than looking at the facts and determining what an outcome might be predicated upon facts, they were looking at a preordained, predestined target outcome and saying, what facts can we manufacture or what facts can we bend to our will? And in my mind, and I think back to just grade school science, that is not how we're supposed to perceive the world when we're talking about facts and applying facts to try to make situations better, or to try to understand a situation. What, Joe, you missed that whole lesson on alternative facts? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that's unfortunately a lesson that I think is starting to be taught more and more. Aaron? Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we talked about this the last in the last show that, um, that in fact, uh, you know, as opposed to the facts or or have real having real knowledge, um, these folks are relying upon um, uh, s- some frameworks, some or some racist and and colonial frameworks that are that are mythological at, at their core. Um, one, and, and you see this more so in the earlier parts of what we were reading today. Um, kind of a, the reference to, you know, this almost the framework of eugenics, um, paupers, uh, the the poor, uh, not wanting to work, not not you know somehow, <laughs> which is it, it is interesting because in Maine I think people think of themselves always as defying that logic, but l- let's say that you know there's this huge swath of um, of poor people, both white and, and Indian, as they point out, that are just paupers and not unwilling to work. Um, and, and But they mobilize this sort of, you know, cap- capability of things, you know, this language of lesser than, somehow subhuman level types of things. And that's sort of the eugenics um, approach, which in the 40s was still very much a part of public discourse. Um, and then the, the, the other one, which is... Um, and Harold had referenced this as sort of the, the, the idea of racialization and 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 uh, Eric, um, the idea that racialization in, in a particular way um, uh, has is a part of a an erasure narrative, right? So the presumption of uh, these people will will just disappear uh, and uh, somehow, uh, the, I had not seen this uh, in, in in the main context before, but I have seen it in other places um, across uh, Turtle Island where uh, colonial forces uh, talk about uh, intermarriage, meaning that there would be, you know, fewer and fewer real Indians is what they, they'll say, or, or full bloods. Um, and then that would be, oh, you know, then we have this, you know, legacy then of the reservation that will have mostly people who aren't uh, really even Indians uh, on it, right? So this 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 formulation, un- re- misrecognizing that the the treaties are with uh, nations and not with a race of people uh, or with, uh, um, you know, particular tribes and, and not with, you know, uh, uh, a formulation of ra- racialization that that uh, is fixed at a moment in time. So, the the idea there could be this reservation without uh, um, Indians is is an interesting idea, but it it shows again the the level of of ignorance. And I'll just say one more thing, like um, because you see this uh, as well in some of the environmental conflicts, uh, where it's like um, trying to monetize something like 
the hunting and fishing and 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 ash uh the forestry rights uh, from our treaties um and trying to equate that with the kinds of things that were um quote unquote given or 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 appropriated uh through the legislature uh to to kind of honor those and saying like well if you look at it you know if you monetize this and say blah 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 and then well we we've given them then it's probably we probably give them way more than what all that stuff is worth and then th them not realizing that actually if you were to recognize all the ash you know the hunting the fishing the uh, hunting of ashes as, as as Harold referenced um this notion of self-reliance would be <laughs> they would solve that political uh, conundrum of these paupers not wanting to work but be like here here are all the rights promised in treaties for your self-reliance uh, re re but it's it's always with the state of Maine that they want it both ways make us paupers and also not allow us to exercise these retained rights uh, that we fought so far so hard for in in our treaty so it, it's it's it, it, there's never any intent in that and there's never any realization that these are contradictory terms right that that the denial of our hunting and fishing and and rights to ash is precisely creating the situation that they're now trying to solve eric uh, I, I was uh, i had um also marked that passage that joe had referenced about state of maine saying that it wanted to uh create essentially alternative facts upon which it could bake a means of of um, divesting the tribes of support. And I think one of the things that, that really strikes me about that, and, and it resonates throughout all of the testimony, is at best, there are people who are ignorant of the facts. They don't know the law. They don't know what has happened in the past. Um, and that's our best case scenario with some of these legislators. I think that this particular clause by Mr. Payson indicates ill intent that we don't care what the facts are we're gonna we're going to move forward and i you hear that as people speak they're saying we, we don't need to know what happened in the past we just want to go forward at this point in time and i think that that is important to recognize when when we start talking about the limitations of the settlement act and when I hear people talking about, oh, we ought to leave the Settlement Act the way it is, it's a treaty is a treaty. Well, wait a minute. If you're entering into a treaty, you have to enter into it. If you're entering into an agreement, it's assumed that everybody's entering in it in good faith. And, and there's a real question of good faith when you have those kind of statements being made. And I think the other thing that struck me is um, the discussion about the treaty. And it, it is fascinating to me that um, on page 44, Mr. McDonald says, anyways, no state could make a law that was going to conflict with the United States treaty or with another nation, could it? And I'm sitting here going, okay, that we understood to be true and accurate. And yet that's exactly what the state of Maine did it, the, it, with regards to the tribes in Maine. The fact of the matter is in 17, 1791, I think it was a Non-Alienation Act, that said, look, you can't take away tribal lands. And then the state of Maine, as soon as it becomes a state, starts negotiating with the tribe saying, well, we don't really care about what the feds did. And we hear that resonate in the Newell case in the, the late 1800s where they go, oh, no, no, these are 
these are not Indians in the sense of uh, the the that uh, the uh, that Supreme Court or the federal law applies to. The, those are Indians that were meant for those laws were made for the Indians out west, um, and that I think is extraordinarily revealing as to what the state of Maine was prepared to do and did do with regards to the tribe. That it it knew that it couldn't make a law that was going to conflict with the treaties with the under federal law, and yet it did so anyways. Harold? Yeah, this, uh, the term contradictory has been used by some of the panel here, and uh, that's correct. And one uh, term that refers to when something's contradictory is, of course, a paradox. And the paradox here in terms of Indians and paupers, uh, namely reducing Indians to pauperhood, uh, was actually part of the plan. Um, it sounds like a, cons a conspiracy theory, but it's not. If you look at James Sullivan, um, who became, who was the Attorney General for the state of Massachusetts um, uh, when Maine was still part of uh, Massachusetts, and he uh, was from Maine, of course. Uh, the town of Sullivan is named after his brother, uh, who died in the um, in the uh, Revolutionary War. Um, his brother was a general from New Hampshire, but Sullivan, uh, as attorney general, before he became the governor of Massachusetts in the early 1800s, specifically uh, referred to the idea of um, robbing, raiding, if you will, Penobscot uh, uh, and Passamquoddy, in this particular case, of their uh, rights to the timber. And timber, of course, was a, a extraordinary valuable resource that could be monetized and was being monetized. And the rights to the timberlands um, were taken away from the tribes and were appropriated um, through the control of the Indian agent uh, by the state, uh, first Massachusetts and then Maine. But the explicit purpose was by Sullivan, by um, undermining the economic subsistence base of the tribes, you could reduce them to um, pauper them. And once they were paupers and completely dependent on the state, you could destroy them. That was basically the idea. And he's very explicit. I'm not making this up. Um, uh, I've studied his writings uh, very carefully um, in the case of the um, Penobscot uh, sovereignty over the river uh, dispute, um, because that was very of, of great interest to me. So that's number one. Number two, um, the um, however ignorant these uh, uh, legislators uh, may have been or were, uh, and we can see that in, in to a large degree from this uh, transcript, which Donna wanted us to read, um, but it doesn't mean that they are, in their ignorance, harmless, uh, because um, if you look at a newspaper account from the Bangor Daily News of the 7th of January, 1944, so that's uh, uh, just after uh, this committee meeting, and I'll read a short article, if I may, uh, quickly reading. Old Town Indians lose tribal status by intermarriage. So that's uh, the 7th of January, 1944. Old Town, January 6th. The Tribal Committee of the Indian Island Reservation held its annual census meeting Wednesday at the schoolhouse and voted to enforce the intermarriage law. This law, which was passed in legislative bill in Augusta last year, takes away or gives the right of membership in the Penobscot tribe. An Indian man or woman marrying a white person loses his rights of being a member of the tribe under the new law. Although there is one exemption, and this is the boys in service. 
They will not lose their rights as long as they are in service. An Indian man or woman marrying a member of another tribe may be adopted by one tribe or the other. So here you see the discussion about intermarriage that begins to um, situate and slide into an actual law that then is um, uh, adopted by the tribe. And then in uh, 1947, so that's uh, two years after the war is over, you have a other um, article uh, that's uh, from 4th of January, 1947. Penobscot tribe reduced to 565 during past year. The Census Committee of Indian Island, according to custom, met the first Wednesday of the new year for purposes of passing on the names of members of the tribe for the year. According to the record, the membership of the Penobscot tribe decreased this year by 13 members. At the beginning of the new year in 1946, there were 578 members, and this year the number is 565. There were 10 births during the year, and one member of the tribe um, reinstated. There were 12 marriages. As a result of the marriages which united Indians with white people, four were dropped from membership according to a recent law against marrying whites. This law was adopted in an effort to keep the Indian blood within the tribe as long as possible. There are 81 absentees or members of the tribe living elsewhere. Eight of these were voted off the membership list as their whereabouts are unknown and they may not even be living. The following members of the Census Committee were present at the meeting, which was opened by the retiring chairman of the 1946 Census Committee, Mrs. Lucy Poulaw, Ms. Pauline Shea, new chairman, Mrs. Foran Shea, clerk, Walter Ranko, Horace Pulchis, Horace Melvin, Warren Mitchell, James Lewis, Sylvester Francis, Lauren Shea, and the new govern governor, Albert Nicola. Two members of the committee were absent, George Ranko and Lauren Sokalexis. End of the article. So what it shows when we talk about contradictions, right, it's extremely difficult to navigate through history in a linear fashion. It never happens. It's a kind of slalom, right? It's like zigzagging back and forth. That's the dialectics. We've referred to that before. So it's a huge mistake to draw these straight lines from past to present into the future. It's very often because of the contradictions that are happening is there because there was a real concern on the part of the indigenous community at Indian Island of the influence in particular of white males coming on the reservation and taking over um, the, uh, the, the, the tribal decisions on, the, on tribal lands. So this whole thing is much more convoluted than it seems to be the case simply in terms of white Indian or whatever. It also has to do about control over natural resources, inheritance of property on the reservation, uh, who can inherit when somebody dies, who can buy it, who cannot buy it, and all these kinds of laws that um, the tribal judge, of course, for the Penobscot Nation knows much more about than I do, but this is just uh, one of these uh, examples. I kind of look at it as internalized racism. Darren? Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's alarming uh, to think about those decisions around <laughs> membership i mean i think there's state laws and i think any of that but the the idea that our census committee you know went along with this is 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 what you said donna you know that internal uh internalized racism um and and yeah you know, it's something we struggle with as well today right i mean in terms of blood quantum discussions i think you know these are um difficult decisions for a variety of interconnected issues that that our tribes uh, currently face. And, you know, we have a, you know, a kind of a stagnant, I think, 
uh, at Penobscot, a sort of st stagnant level of um, citizenship um, numbers that um, reflect this, you know, reflect that our, um, um, we, we, we will have to address this once again, like the, like the, citizen, you know, the, the committee did in, um, in the 1940s. And, and I think they moved away from that in the following few years too, Harold, but I think, um, yeah, there was, uh, uh, <laughs> difficult, uh, and, and horrifying decisions being made. I think it was in early fifties, 51, yeah. 52, they reversed that, uh, that ruling. That's right. Through the, the tribal census committee. That's uh, how, and I think it's some of the same people too. Like, I mean, these, these Lumina, I mean, some of these are well-known Penobscot, maybe they're the troublemakers that the, the folks are referencing, um, but these are well-known um, Penobscot um, activists, uh, um, spokespeople, um, leaders. You know that were on the census committee. It was it wasn't uh, you know <laughs> these are well-known, and I think uh, also involve uh, you know other besides the current um, the governor uh, of the tribe, uh, other people who are past and future future governors of the tribe. I think Joe, you're next. Yeah, I just kind of my final thought for the day is just to engage the audience a little bit. I, you know, I, I challenge folks to kind of take some time to sit with this and read it. Uh, I think it's it's worth reading for yourself. It's wonderful to have this in the public record and to have audio recordings to kind of breathe life into this. But I think one of the interesting things an exercise you can do is to go through and try to count or at least look for one example. And there are many of places in which a proposition or a belief or a predetermined outcome is stated by an elected official and then is followed in multiple different instances by questions which would be necessary to have answers to before you can make that statement to begin with. So if we come in with a with a predetermined, and you can see it on the last page where, uh, last two pages when Mr. McDonald is testifying, but essentially coming in and saying, we have this problem from Maine's perspective and, and through Mr. McDonald saying, you know, we, we would have a problem if we had intermarriage and the tribe were to grow. That would be a problem for the state of Maine is essentially what he's saying. And then to go through, uh, and that question is posed at the outset, or that position is posed at the outset and then back at the end. But then to go through and have questions asking just fundamental things. How many people are in the tribes? How much does it cost? Are they intermarrying? Like, they actually ask the basic question, do they, is there intermarriage? Uh, they didn't even know the answer to the question before posing the ultimate thesis. So I, I would just encourage the audience to kind of engage with this document on that level and, and to think for yourselves and to really dissect it in that way. Thank you for uh, for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I want to thank uh, Judge Eric Menert, Attorney Joe Gauss, Professor Harold Prince, Dan Ranko for being on the show today. And the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalker. And tune in again next month for another Webinacki Windows. <laughs>